Miss Perry, she's out there to uh, take you to uh, kids if you're uh, supposed to go to children's worship. Uh, follow Mrs. Perry over there. Is that everybody? Anybody else? Stragglers? So, so we uh, have started uh, this fall looking at the Old Testament book of Numbers, and uh, today um, we're up to Numbers chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, numbers is about a lot of numbers. Uh-huh, you can laugh. Um, it's about uh, taking counts and the census of uh, God's people as they're preparing to go into the uh, promised land. Uh, and today we're going to uh, talk about a, one tribe in particular, and that's the tribe of Levi. So uh, if you see uh, in your uh, bulletin where it says scripture reading, Numbers uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, um, we're going to read that. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the first 10 verses, and then we'll get uh, uh, next week we'll talk about uh, the rest of the chapter. But today, Numbers 3, uh, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any, come, any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Israel, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So uh, when you when you read any piece of literature, when you read any portion of the Bible or any book, what matters is how you interpret it, how you read it. What, what, what are the themes, what, is the, what are the things that are most uh, important uh, in that book? Scott, you can go ahead and put my notes up there. And so that's what we have to do when we look at the book of Numbers, because what, what could happen here in the book of Numbers is we could, we could readily get off track, because what could happen to us is we could begin to think, uh, take each text here, isolate them from the whole of the scriptures, and arrive at some conclusions that 
would not, in the end, be the kind of conclusions that are helpful. You see, what you have to do, and any time you read a verse in the Bible, any time you read a section of the Scriptures, any time you read any part of the Bible, you have to interpret it correctly. And part of interpreting it correctly is seeing and asking the question of how does this text fit into the big thing that God is doing? And what is the big thing that God is doing? Redeeming a people for himself. So otherwise you could get lost in this and you could be, you could draw some conclusions about what the scriptures have to say. You could misinterpret it and you could, you could miss the really big thing that God's doing. You could, you could draw conclusions about, uh, holiness or you could draw conclusions about worship or you could draw conclusions that divorce from the big thing that God is doing and drawing a people to himself and sending Jesus into the world to save them. Then you might miss out on it. And so, so it's really important for us to ask, what's the big theme and how is this theme developed throughout the scriptures? In fact, there are some scholars, uh, way smarter than me, who would say that all of that stuff that we read about in the Old Testament was setting the stage and preparing the people. So the big thing, when Jesus comes into the world, there's a people, there's actually a nexus, even like a cradle for Jesus to drop into that's prepared for him so that the work that he is going to do, that all of the Old Testament has led up to, will uh, bear fruit in the lives of his people. Now, interpreting these things is so important. And um, I, I want to give you, I want to give you an example of how this works and how uh, how sometimes we get off. So um, I was doing some thinking uh, uh, this yesterday. Um, between my wife and I, that we have uh, five postgraduate degrees. That is unbelievable. School was a lot cheaper when we were growing up than it is now. So what do we talk about? We talk about great works of literature. So a dispute has risen among some first grade teachers about the interpretation of a great work of literature. And we were hashing it out. Ever heard of the book Corduroy? <laughs> Ever heard of that? Hey, this is serious business. How you interpret this book. Corduroy is the story of a stuffed corduroy bear, right, who's in a department store. And uh, corduroy really wants to get chosen. He really wants to get bought. And one day Lisa and her mom come to look at him, and Lisa looks at corduroy and she decides, I really want corduroy. But Lisa's mom typical mom, says, spend enough money. We've been at the store long enough. And anyway, he's missing a button. We don't want him. And they leave. So the store closes, and Corduroy thinks, you know what? I want to get chosen. If, if, if it, all it takes is me getting a button to get chosen, I'm going to search this store, and I'm going to get a button, and I'm going to get chosen. So he takes off, wanders the store, gets on the escalator, looks around, goes to a mattress. This is how old this book is, and it has a button on it. And he decides, I'm going to take that button, 
and I'm going to put this button on my overalls, and then I'll go back to my place, and when Lisa shows back up, she'll buy me. Well, he tries to pull the button off the mattress, and he can't, and he falls. He makes noise, and then, bless his heart, the poor night watchman (laughs) who must think there must have been something in his coffee or in his sandwich uh, that this bear is suddenly in another part of the store where it's not supposed to be, picks him up, takes him, puts him on the shelf, and Corduroy spends the rest of the night there. He wakes up the next morning, and Lisa has opened up her piggy bank, got all her money together, and she realizes she has enough money to go buy Corduroy. And so she goes and she buys him. And she takes him home and she puts him in her room and she sews the button, a button on him and says, you'll be more comfortable now with this button. And they agree that they'll be friends. Now, some people wrongly interpret that to be a book about friendship. It's not about friendship. It's about bigger themes than that. It's about how people who don't have it together, who are missing way more than buttons, by the way, have a price paid for them so that they can be in relationship and loved and chosen. What we're going to see as we look at this text today is that theme further developed. Because what we see here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is a description of the choice of the tribe of Levi to be the people who serve and guard uh, the work of the tabernacle there among God's people. And so as we think about this today, one of the things that we always get off track on is we scratch around and we look for some sort of human work or reason for the choice of God. You think, you think, you think that somehow or other you're here this morning because you made some sort of choice or you had some sort of merit whereby God would say, yeah, Whereas Kevin prayed earlier that God looked at you and said, they're bad, but there's something redeemable about them. So I'll cooperate with that to redeem them, right? When in fact, that's not it at all. What we see here is, and one of the things that you have to, that is so scandalous is that it almost never makes any sense to us about why God chooses the people that he chooses or chooses the kind of people that he chooses to be his people. And so as we look at this today, we're going we're gonna to unpack a little bit of that and arrive not just at a conclusion about the merits and the, the meritoriousness of, of the, the Levites as people to serve God, but we're going to draw some conclusions about this God who in his love and grace and mercy chooses, right? So what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks are two themes that are intertwined and developed. But we're going to spend most of the time this morning on uh, the the census and the selection uh, uh, of the Levites, right? 
Now, one of the things, and then next week we'll look more at the, this question of the redemption of the firstborn, right? So one of the things that's interesting about this is that so much of the book of Numbers, in fact, uh, um, much of the book of Numbers, perhaps maybe more, uh, well, more uh, mentions in the book of Numbers of Levites and priests than there are even of them in the book of Leviticus. Do you know that? How weird is that? Leviticus, that, that would seem to be, that would be where you would get all that. But actually, the, there's more talk about the Levites in uh, the book of Numbers than there is anywhere else uh, in the Bible. Next, next slide, please, Scott. So, and, and the thing that we have to see about this is, is that they are given some specific roles. They're given the roles certainly of being the priests, but also the wider group of the Levites are given the roles of protecting and moving and doing the work of the tabernacle, Right? So as we'll see in, in the coming weeks, they, different people have different responsibilities of carrying different parts of the tabernacle. Whenever they're in the uh, in camp and when they're on the move, there's a certain group of this, this tribe, and their job is to guard. To, their job is to, to, to act as, as watchmen and guards and really as, as soldiers to protect uh, the tabernacle. And so, uh, and it's also from this group of people that the priests are going to come. The people are going to offer the sacrifices and the people are going to lead in worship and all of those sorts of things. So, so what we would assume is that there's something uniquely religious or moral about the tribe of Levi that would cause God to choose them, right? Isn't that why we would, we would, we would think that? We would think that there's something particular about them that would make that happen. Well, so let's ask some questions about that. Why, humanly speaking, would God choose this particular tribe to do this particular work? Well, one of the things that we, if, if, when you, when you look at this, and one of the reasons why the book of Numbers is written the way it is, is it's to connect these people at the foot of Mount Sinai with the people that they came from, with their ancestors. So if you go back to see what uh, Jacob said about Levi on his deathbed, you're going to be prepared to hear all this stuff about Levi. You're such a righteous man. You're such a godly man. Out of you will come all the priests. This is what he says about Levi and Simeon. He puts the brothers together. Simeon, now, now just think, imagine this. Here's Jacob on his deathbed. We have this picture that dads on their deathbeds are going to say these wonderful things about their kids, right? Oh, you're so great. You're so awesome. You know, I love you so much. Well, here's what Jacob said. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not, be, be not joined to their company. In other words, protect me from them. Because they're really violent, right? Really violent. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Now, you know, honestly, in our culture today, killing men is not that big a deal, right? But don't mess with animals, right? <laughs> right? They, they hamstrung oxen. That's terrible. That's really bad. After all. Don't you have to sign adoption papers to bring an oxen home from the uh, uh, oxen uh, shelter, right? Don't you have to? Don't you? Have to, I'm, I'm mocking you people and your pets, but um, they hamstrung and their willfulness. They killed people, and if that wasn't bad enough, they hamstrung oxen. So, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter 
them in Israel. Wow. It's a pretty harsh thing to say, isn't it? Well, what's this about? Well, um, there's this story in Genesis chapter 34, which if you're a parent and you have a small child with you and you know what happens in Genesis 34, relax. I'm not going to say anything to make you blush or that you're going to have to explain over lunch, okay? Levi has a sister named Dinah. She's really cute. And a local boy who is not of the uh, people of God sees her and thinks she's really cute and he wants to marry her. Well, before he marries her, he does something he shouldn't do. But he wants to make it right. And so he goes to Jacob and to Dinah's, his, the, this girl's uh, um, brothers, and says, hey, I want to marry your sister, your daughter, and we'll pay any price. We'll do anything you want us to do. I love her. So the boys think about it, and they go back to them and say, well, you know, we're the people of God, and there's something about us that sets us apart, and that is all the men uh, who are followers of God are circumcised. So if all your men and you will get circumcised, we'll agree to this. Now, before you get too sympathetic to the, to the, to, uh, the guy who's about to get circumcised, he goes back to his friends and family and says, look, all we have to do is get circumcised. If we do that, all their property will become ours because we'll marry into their families and we'll get all their stuff. So... Really great people here, really top-notch, okay? So they all, these guys, all the grown men, they get circumcised. And on the third day after they've been circumcised, Levi and his buddies come to where they are and kill them all. Kill them all. And Jacob looks at his boys and says, do you not understand how hard you have made life for us now? There's way more of these Canaanites than there are of us. Can you only imagine now what's going to happen to us as a result of this? So Jacob never forgets this. He remembers that this is the way uh, that his boys were. And one of the things that you have to see about Levi is even... even uh, uh, Centuries later, uh, when the people of Israel are worshiping the golden calf, what do the Levites do? They take their swords and they go and they kill over 3,000 of uh, the Israelites who are worshiping the golden calf and their zeal for uh, uh, the holiness of God. So when we think about this and we recognize this, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that somehow or other, this is... This is, this is not the kind of people that we would, we would tend to think of would make good priests. 
people who whose lineage and kind of bent in the world is towards violence, right? And so, so what happens here is this this one tribe is set aside, and their lives are given over to the service of the tabernacle and the protection of the tabernacle. That's and and in many ways that's an honored position. That's a highly esteemed and respected position. But there's nothing about the Levites in particular that makes them particularly suited for this. And if you, if you had any questions about that at all, we see that by this, this, uh, 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 allusion in this text that there were priests, Nadab and Abihu, priests who worked in the tabernacle, who disregarded what God said about the kind of fire to use to burn incense, and they just used whatever they wanted, and God dealt with them very harshly, right? So here's what you have to see about this. God chooses whom he will for whatever purpose he deems fit. Now, you have to see that, and you have to be a little bit offended by that, because what what we have to recognize about that is, if that is true, then God could redeem that person you think least redeemable. And not only that, might he not redeem them, but he might also take that person you despise, the kind of person that you despise, and sit them right next to you in the congregation. Right? Next slide. Um, So what you have to see about this is it looks like that God would pick better, right? But all you have to do to under to, to think about that is to look at the 12 disciples and to look at the church. Now, whenever we read in the Gospels and we look at the list of the 12 disciples and we and we hear about the disciples and their interaction with Jesus throughout uh, Jesus's ministry, we always kind of conclude that they don't really know what's going on. They don't really understand. They make a lot of mistakes and that sort of thing. But one of the things that you miss is when you read the list of the 12 disciples is not only are they people who miss what Jesus is doing, they're not the kind of people that you would bring together to achieve anything. Because within the 12 disciples are groups of people who are represented there who hate one another. They're tax collectors who work for the Roman government. And there are zealots and there are hitmen. Did you know that? Who kill the tax collectors. They're in the group. They're the people that Jesus chooses together. When, when you read about Simon the Zealot and you read about Judas Iscariot, what you need to see there is those are the people that would, would uh, uh, resort to violence to kill people like Matthew. And yet here they are sleeping together, eating together, uh, working, uh, traveling uh, doing ministry together, right? So it looks like God would pick better. Not only would he pick people who are smarter, more talented, better looking, but also pick a group of people that's homogeneous enough that they can get along to achieve to achieve a purpose. And yet what we see here is, is that God picks people who are quite, uh, uh, to our way of thinking, probably unsuitable and people that we, we might not not choose. Look at the church. 
One of the things that we note about the church, one of the things we note about God's choice of the people in the Old Testament is there's nothing particular about you that would make God choose you. You all, every one of you, is missing more than a button. <laughs> okay. You're, 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 you're missing way more than a button. And so, so the price that God pays to redeem you and to draw you to himself and then to sit you down and to sew the button on. And by the way, he probably has to sew that button on numerous times because you keep pulling it off. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is uh, when we look at the church, that's one of the things that we have to see and we have to say about it. Because the kind of people that God redeems, uh, the kind of people that God draws to himself are not typically the kind of people that we think are the redeemable kinds of people. Peter writes that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And so what we might think about that is, well, wow, listen to that. I am a chosen race. I am a royal priest. I am a holy nation. I am God's own people. But what happens to that is, and, and those are great promises and those are great things that identify you, but you have to see that you didn't achieve those things and you didn't bring those things to the table and what God simply did is recognize how great you were and stick you in and among his people. You are these things because Jesus has redeemed you. You are these things because of the work of God. You are these things because God loves you first and foremost and draws you together and draws you to himself. It's not because, and we should never, ever forget this, that I'm smart, that I'm, uh, or that I'm even a victim and somehow or other that earns me. It's not any kind of gifts that I have, not any kind of experiences, good or bad, that I've had. It is simply that God is for me. And if God can be for me, then who else might he be for? So now while there are many uh, moral lessons uh, in the Bible, the big story is the work of God, the love of God, and the example of God of setting his love upon whomever he will and drawing those people to himself and redeeming them. Listen, listen, this is how we know that the church and the people of God, this is how we know that God's at work among these people here at the foot of Mount Sinai is he is employing and using people that we would never dream possible in a million years that these are the kind of people that God might use. So look around the room and look at the people you're tempted to despise. Or maybe look around the room and think about, or if you're like me, think about the people who you know are tempted to despise you. <laughs> if you're more paranoid like me, they don't like me, right? And next, think about all those people that you're glad who aren't here. Because if they were here, it would make you so uncomfortable and make you think, hmm, like a Levite who lies and cheats and kills in his anger. 
All of this is not to communicate to us some sort of openness that we need to have to other people, but to cause us to be humbled by the question, what is it about me that Jesus would have to die? And why in the world would God love someone like me? Because if he can love me, he can love anybody. You believe that? Let's pray. Lord, thanks today uh, for uh, uh, just this work, uh, how mysterious, how great, and how awesome you are in loving and choosing uh, broken and uh, challenging uh, vessels like us. Thank you that uh, you come near to us and that uh, you draw uh, close uh, to people who, uh, people, well, frankly, people that would make us uncomfortable. And yet you make them your own, uh, and you even employ them in uh, the work that you're doing in the world. Lord, thanks for that. Help us today to uh, entrust ourselves uh, more and more to you, to see you uh, do this work in and among us. I pray that you would bless us with a, a, a realistic uh, humility and sense of how great you are, how needy we are, and how good it is to be loved, simply to be loved, to be redeemed by you. So help us with that today. Give us a clear vision of that, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So the guys come up to take up the offering. Let me remind you to drop your tear off in the plate. Please don't feel pressure to give. Only give today if it's a part of your worship in response to God's goodness and grace.